This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There have been, we, we are right now in the middle of an endless, I think endless is a fair word, an endless discussion about LRT. And essentially what it comes down to, what the, what the bottom line is for the LRT, we're not going to talk about the LRT right now, don't worry. But what we, when we're talking, when the discussion is going on about the LRT around council, around the city, essentially the underlying piece of the LRT discussion is it's about the future of the city of Hamilton. What kind of future do we want? Some people believe that we want to have an LRT and that will drive things quite literally. Others believe the LRT is going to get in the way, but it's all about the future of the city, just different views of it. Well, there have been not necessarily like the LRT, but there have been loads and loads and loads of plans over the years in this city for stuff that in some cases did, but in many cases never came to fruition in the city of Hamilton. Much of it is covered in a new book by Mark Osbaldiston called Unbuilt Hamilton. There's also a display of some of the images of these things that were designed at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. Mark joins me now. Mark, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Um, it, it probably would be helpful. So when, when I am doing this, it would be helpful for people to go to the art gallery and see this exhibit. It would make it much more visual, visual for them. But imagine for a second you, as the guy who studied this, all the stuff that was designed and all the interesting things that people had come up with that they had visualized and imagined for the city of Hamilton. Imagine that it all happened, Mark. What, what would the city of Hamilton look like right now? Um, I think it would look... Uh unique on the continent, as one planner from 1917 said about probably the most astounding plan, and one of the most astounding plans in my book, uh, would have had an amphitheater carved into the side of the escarpment, would have had a 500-foot-wide grand boulevard leading from the lake to that amphitheater, um, would have had a planetarium on a Washington-style landscape mall downtown where, uh, where Jackson Square is now. Um, stadiums, arenas, um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, elevated transit line circling the downtown and heading up the escarpment through a tunnel. What for, I mean, for you, when you start looking through these things, and we're going to go through a few of them, but what is the biggest thing that would have changed the look of Hamilton? What was the biggest plan that was th- trotted out but never actually came to fruition that really would have made Hamilton entirely different from what it is right now. I think it's that, that plan I was telling you about with the amphitheater and the escarpment, and then this, this grand Champs-Élysées-style boulevard heading down right to the water, and in the middle of it, this grand traffic circle with a war memorial um, <laughs> and a train station, which was, you know, uh, like, uh, like some like central uh, terminal in New York. That really would have... Uh, would have put Hamilton on the map, would have made Hamilton look very different. Well, when you start talking about elevated rail lines and the Champs-Élysées, yeah. Arc de Triomphe, and all these kinds of, I mean, it sounds like a mix between Epcot Center and wartime Paris. Yeah, well, it is, and it depends on the era that these things were proposed in. So in that era, 1917, it was very much the planning school that this came out. It was actually called the City Beautiful Movement. So they were very much focused on creating a city that was beautiful. Um, after the war, there seems to be less emphasis um, on that, and you get into the era of urban renewal and uh, what we what we ended up with downtown with the art gallery and uh, and Hamilton Place, etc. Um, I should say, though, not all of it. I mean, that's an interesting thing about this topic. Not all of it, I think, people will look at and think, oh, too bad that didn't happen. I think a lot of it people would look at and think, thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> well, let, let's go through a few of these because some of them really jumped out at me and yep. just explain how this potentially would have worked. A King's Forest Zoo. Yeah, that was, to me, I had never heard of that, and I think that was a completely forgotten proposal. Um, so the idea was uh, just what you said, uh, put, uh, have a zoo, a world-class zoo in King's Forest, and they actually had the city struck a zoo committee. Uh, they started to fund it. They hired an architect to come up with the plans, and then ultimately what happened was um, the city decided that they wanted an expressway. So this was in the 60s. Already they were planning for what became the Red Hill Creek Expressway, and so they said, we can't put the zoo there because we're going to have to plan for this expressway. One of the things, and you, you touched on it, um, that really sort of blows my mind when you see the images of this, and, and there is actually, there are some of the images are at the spec.com. There's a story there. They can see a few of them. But when you talk about the amphitheater that was going to be carved into the escarpment, 
just so people know, you're not talking about like a 2,000 seat little amphitheater where you could have a school band or something. This was going to be a 30,000 seat gigantic thing. What was the plan that we were going to do with a 30,000 seat amphitheater? Well, so originally in 1917, the planner, Newland Cushon, he shows it as an amphitheater and describes it as an, an amphitheater. The interesting thing about it was, I mean, it seems kind of pie in the sky, but at the time, and this is the area where um, Sam Lawrence Park is now, there was a quarry there. So the escarpment was being disfigured by this quarry, and, and what this planner said was, keep quarrying, but start quarrying in a semicircle. So that mm. when you're done, you're going to have this amphitheater. And by 1925, this planner just keeps revising this plan. Uh, and this was a planner hired by the city, I should add. It's not, none of the things I talk about are just kind of speculative. These are all real plans. Um, by 1925, he's showing it as a stadium, and he was actually proposing that Hamilton should host the Olympics and use that stadium as the Olympic Stadium. And, you know, when you lo- when I look at this picture of the amphitheater, and it's somewhere between, and you know, before I was saying Disney World and, and Paris, it's somewhere between something you would see with the Roman Colosseum because it's got this, this monument right in it. And honestly, my first thought when I saw it was it looks like something out of wartime Berlin or, or Germany, almost like a Nazi era kind of thing that it looks like. It's this massive structure. Definitely has that, totally has that monumental character. And you mentioned out of Rome. I, I went through this planner's papers at the National Archives in Ottawa, and um, he actually had images from Roman amphitheaters as his, uh, as his guide. So he was definitely thinking along those lines. And it was intended, as I said, to impress. He said, when you're, when you're sitting in there watching um, a concert or a sporting event, you're going you're gonna to be you know, in the side of the escarpment looking down this grand boulevard and out to Lake Ontario. The, there won't be an experience like it in the world. And he, I think he probably would have been right. Well, no. And, and again, we're talking about the... And, and again, we're talking with Mark Osbaldison, who's written this book called Unbuilt Hamilton. It's about plans that were thrown out there, or maybe not even thrown out there, that were seriously considered that never came to be. Now, my understanding then, this would have been at the base of Sam Lawrence Park, and this, Mark, would have been then attached to or open to a 500-foot-wide road that would have gone right down to the waterfront. Yeah, he would have taken Ferguson Avenue. He would have um, widened it to 500 feet and turned it into this grand boulevard. He was going to have waterfalls coming down the side of the escarpment where this <laughs> amphitheater was. <laughs> the traffic circle, which I show, one of the images that's uh, in the book and uh, in the show at the Art Gallery. And then it would end up at this um, landing, a marine landing uh, in the bay. So his idea was you'd that would be the main entrance to Hamilton by boat or by train because the train station was going to be there and it would really become the new... All right, all right. Because my, my my next thought was, okay, so we have, you know, concept cars. You go to a car show and they have these cars that will never actually be on the road, but they're interesting ideas that will maybe lead to some other more practical vehicle. And I'm wondering, was this idea something that was a concept drawing, or was there actually a belief, actually a thought that this could have maybe happened? I think there definitely was. Um, so the, the planner was, I mean, he, he said that this, you know, might take some time to do, but as I said, he was practical in the sense that he said, just start doing your excavation for the mining there, the, the quarry pit in, in this shape. Um, also, council was behind this plan, um, and as late as 1927, so the plan was released in 1917, as late as 1927, council got an outside opinion from another planner who recommended, yeah, you should, you should proceed with this plan. But they never did. The only thing that came out of that plan was the Sherman Access. That was by that hmm. planner. The one other one, and this one I find so fascinating because, it, boy, it seems like this one, there could still be a market for this somehow, probably costly, but was a monorail from Lime Ridge Mall to the lower city. We're talking about LRT all the time now, and you look at one like that and you think, you know, that could actually make sense still. Yeah, so that would have been, as you said, it was an elevated transit, magnetically driven. It was actually the same technology that the Scarborough uh, RT is used, which being is um, slated for demolition and turning it into a subway. Um, would have gone from Lime Ridge Mall down Upper James into a tunnel down the escarpment and then a loop around the downtown. The idea was later you could have an east-west line downtown and also one to the waterfront. Sounds so familiar. Um, so why were these things not done? Was it entirely based on cost? Was it entirely based on aesthetic? Was, it, was there some other reason? Why, why do you come up with all these ideas and then never do them? I mean, I think in the, in the case of that amphitheater, for sure, cost. Because look what they did build. It was the mountain access. So that's very practical. It was needed. Um, the other stuff it would be nice to have, but you know, not something that's necessary to have. In the case of the elevated transit, um, 
originally council, regional council and local council uh, were both on board, uh, and then they flipped because I think there was a concern about is there going to be the ridership for this? Is this the right route? Is this the most useful route? Um, this was also not, was not going to be accessible to anyone with disabilities. Um, it was going to, you know, it was going to be an elevated like uh, line down the middle of King William, for example. There were concerns about aesthetics, and there were other priorities: highways, the building the link and building the Red Hill uh, Creek Expressway, being two higher transportation priorities at the time. Again, sounds so familiar. Um, you've written other books about other cities, about Toronto specifically. Oh, yeah. But even, I mean, I'm sure you've also looked at other cities around as you're doing this. Are we unique in this kind of thing that all these plans came forward and never came to anything? Or is this commonplace with cities all over the place? No, I think for, you know, cities that are growing and that are vibrant, um, I mean, Hamilton had phenomenal growth in the 20th century. It's, it's not unique. And I, I mean, I found that with Toronto. Uh, Hamilton is unique because the geography is so unique. So like the, some of those things we discussed, the tunnel up the mountain, the amphitheater in the mountain, um, that makes it unique. But the idea that you have these proposals that never come to fruition, um, I think for any great growing city, uh, it's not unusual. I mean, you're having, these discussions are happening now, right, on the LRT about what to do with Purate. So I think cities that are, that are growing, these are always issues. Do you have, when you started researching this book, did you have any idea all this stuff was out here? Because I don't think most people have any idea. They see these pictures, they hear these stories, and they go, wow, that's great, but never knew that these things were out there. No, I'm going to be quite honest with you. The publisher asked if I would be interested in writing this because he knew I was from Hamilton. He was too. Um, And I said I would do it, but I have to make sure there's enough there because I don't think there's really going to be enough there. Um, And after my first year of research, I, I realized there was way more than I expected. So I was, and I was really happy to show things that I don't think people have seen since, you know, the last time they were proposed, like the King's Forest Zoo, for example. Well, and where, where i got to go in just a minute here, but where do you find all this stuff? Because I can't imagine there's a file somewhere at Hamilton Public Library that says stuff we never did. No, I mean, the Hamilton Public Library is great because they've got these clipping binders. You just go through. Uh, I went to Ottawa, I looked through the archives, Ontario archives. The stuff ends up all over. Guelph, Waterloo. I had people check Manitoba for me, so it really can end up anywhere. It is really fascinating stuff. I mean, really, the, the images, when you go look again, look at the spec.com or go to the art gallery, look at the pictures. It is, am I overstating it by saying the word majestic in some cases? No, I think that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's so beyond what we visualize, and I love the city of Hamilton, but it's beyond what we visualize about Hamilton in such a massive way right now. Everything is so grand in these pictures, and, and it's it's stunning to think that this could have actually been the way that this city looked. And, and it, again, complete, it would have ch- completely changed the way this city appeared. Absolutely. Marcus Baldison, again, the book Unbuilt Hamilton. Um, is the book out yet, or is it coming book, out? Yep. Oh, the book's out now. It's available in uh, all local bookstores or online. Go look it up. Uh, go to the art gallery. Go to the spec.com. It's, it's well, well worth your time. It's fascinating stuff. Mark, thanks for doing this. Really thanks appreciate lot, it. Um, again, imagine a Hamilton. And again, the, the, it's almost hurts your brain to try and imagine this. With a thir- Tim Hortons Field has 24,000 seats, roughly. So imagine a, a, an amphitheater right below Sam Lawrence Park, a full circle almost. It's 30,000 square feet, or 30,000 seats. And in the back of it, in the open part, so there's the, the floor, and then at the farthest end, so the open part, there is a giant war memorial or some sort of monument, and that then spills into a 500-foot-wide Champs-Élysées-type street, massive thoroughfare that will go right through the city to the waterfront where there is more amazing architecture and this is the, the gateway to Hamilton, essentially. And we would be using, this is the, the idea they had. We'd be using boats and things to come into the city as opposed to necessarily all traffic. And it's just, it's wild to think how different this city might have been. It's wild to think about it. And we're fighting about LRT. Imagine what the discussions must have been back there at that time when they start talking about how much is this going to cost? And, and gondolas and, and electric trains coming from Lime Ridge Mall down the mountain. I mean, it really is 
wildly futuristic mixed with wartime architecture mixed with all kinds of it would have it would have looked like Epcot Center. We would have been living in a real life Epcot Center. The only thing missing would have been the giant golf ball in the middle. And we probably could have added that later on. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Blue Jays win 5-1. The world is back spinning in an okay orbit. Everyone's happy, everyone's smiling. Nobody's sad anymore. The bandwagon has refilled. And joining me to follow up on this, Rick Zamperin, the guru of all things sporting here at 900 CHML. Rick, Rick thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. How are you? Uh, so here's your question for tonight. Tell me every. Tell me five facts about Ryan Merritt. <laughs> is this a trick question? <laughs> Ryan Merritt is the guy that the Cleveland Indians have chosen to pitch tomorrow's game. <laughs> yeah. He is a rookie left-hander. Now, I got to tell you, uh he he's got a, a he's got some nice numbers. Now, he only had 4 games this season. Uh he's got a 164 ERA. He was mostly a reliever. He had one start. But mm-hmm. is is it wise? I mean, I suppose Cleveland has wiggle room, which they do, but it, would you want to start a rookie who's had only one major league start in Toronto in the dome with the fans going berserk tomorrow? Would that be the place to start a rookie? Yeah and no. I mean, you know, having a three-one series lead, you're still in the more than comfortable stage. Not to say you can afford a loss, but really, you can afford a loss. The Jays can't one more loss, and they're done. The issue that I have seen, not only this year uh, or in this series, but in in past years, it seems that the Jays' heavy hitters do a lot more damage against the established pitchers and and Uh, more or less the starting guys. You know, Corey Kluber, great example tonight. Not not that they pounded him, but, you know, they got to him. Obviously, he was on, you know, short rest. But it seems like whenever a team throws out a virtual unknown, a guy who's making his first major league start, or he just has a handful of starts, the Jays have never seen him before, they have difficulty solving whoever is on the mound because of the limited time, the limited film that they have on him, the limited book that they have on his tendencies, what he's going to throw in a certain situation. Uh, And I can see it with a homer-happy kind of club. We've seen it in this series. Getting a little greedy. Yeah, especially yesterday. We saw, you know, six relievers, and none of them threw more than 30 pitches. And that goes to show you that there's a bit of impatience at the plate uh, from the Toronto Blue Jays. They're looking for that long ball. They're looking for the big, kind of dramatic shot. Uh, and it has not come. And, and against the guys that they had, don't really have a, a good book on, uh, I've, I've seen this team struggle. So I would, I would not be shocked at all if Merritt goes in there and pitches, you know, a, a three-hit kind of seven-inning gym. All right, now here's the flip side of that, and I'm, I'm, I mean, it's still a minor miracle if the Jays, more than a minor miracle, it's a full-on miracle if the Jays could come back and actually win this series. However, if the Jays' offense actually gets rolling at all and beats up on this kid tomorrow, there will be, I would guess, full panic in Cleveland. Because right now, Cleveland has won three games with basically outdoing or doing almost nothing. I mean, it's just because Toronto's pitching's been great, Cleveland's pitching's been great, but neither team has hit. And Cleveland popped out three times with the winner, as the winner. If Toronto's offense starts to heat up and they their last hope is Corey Kluber waiting in, the, in, in Game 7, who's going to go on short rest again, there will be some worry, I would guess, in Cleveland if Toronto wins tomorrow. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Marco Estrada's on the hill. We know what he can do. He has been, you know, unbelievable. Uh, then you have Jay Happ and Marcus Stroman. And, and if somehow they force the game seven, Aaron Sanchez would be available again. We know what he did today. We know what he's done all season. Uh, and, and in, you know, in a seventh game kind of scenario, you throw uh, caution to the wind and, and you go with your gut more often than not. Um but I like the Jays' chances tomorrow because they have a, a bit of momentum. They've, they've kind of had the monkey off their back. And they haven't played horribly in the first three games. They, they just haven't hit. Yeah, they just couldn't get a hit or a key hit in, in a key situation. And, and Cleveland's, you know, manufactured runs. You know, Coco Crisp, Rajay Davis, uh, you know, they take a walk, they steal a base, a wild pitch, a base hit, and, you know, it's, it's a one nothing ball game. And that's basically how Cleveland beat Boston, and that's how they beat Toronto over the first three games. They, you know, going into this game, both teams had the exact amount of hits. I think it was 20-20 or something around there. 17, I and, think, each, yeah. 
Yeah, the, yeah, that, that's what it is. And and you know the the score was eight to four combined total. Um, you know, not many teams are going to win games scoring one run a game, and the Blue Jays were doing that over the first. And that's and that's why I say if the Jays can get their offense just going, and I, I you know we were talking about this all day, if they would just take what's given to them instead of trying to hit home runs, just go with the ball, go with the outside pitch. If they start getting going, Cleveland, as I say, I think Cleveland starts to get a little bit worried only because their offense is doing nothing. They're off. I mean, you're right. They're they're manufacturing a run or two. They won game one on one swing of the bat, and that was their their one bit of damage. And so, again, I'm not I'm not here predicting the Jays are coming back. It is a massive mountain to climb, and requires that the Jays pitching remains as dominant as it has been. But if tomorrow, if the Jays win, boy, it becomes an interesting story. It really does. Very much so. And I think everyone could agree going into this series that the Jays. Uh, had an edge in the starting pitching because when you look at Cleveland's rotation, not having Carrasco, uh, having a you know a, a guy in Kluber that has come off injury and has pitched well, but a guy that they were going to count on you know in short days rest, Salazar not available to them. This is a wounded kind of starting four or five that's now been reduced really to four. You have Trevor Bauer who's not going to be available because of his you know gushing pinky finger. <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a lineup that can produce runs. I mean, they outscored Toronto in terms of runs this season. Um, and a team that just knows kind of how to win. They're a well-managed team in Terry Francona. But I think when you have a starting pitcher who can give you, and we've seen it time and time again in this series and even in the Texas series, guys that can give you six or seven quality innings, that takes a lot of stress off your pen. And if they can just hit, uh, you know, this team should win maybe one or two or who knows, maybe even three more. Let's jump to the CFL, because we've got a few minutes here, and I really wanted to get you in on the CFL, because this is your... I mean, this is you know this better than anybody around here. And I'm trying to understand... First of all, I, I've said on the record numerous times, I hate instant replay in general. If you're going to have human beings playing the sport and human beings calling some of the calls, I hate the idea of going to instant replay. If you want to have a video game and make it perfect, get a video game and make it perfect. That's my point. But if you're going to have instant replay, Rick, you can't have instant replay that gets more or as many calls wrong as the call that's on the field. And that's what it seems like is going on in the CFL right now. Instant replay isn't actually solving problems. It's creating new problems. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, the latest example, Ticats in Ottawa last Friday night, and, and Greg Ellingson makes what we all thought was a catch and a fumble and a Ticats recovery. Um, but it was ruled incomplete. They went to video review after Kent Austin challenged it, and lo and behold, they still said it was an incomplete catch because uh, Ellingson did not survive contact, basically was the terminology that they used or the explanation that they used. Um, but when we all watched the replay, I think, unless you're a Red Blacks fan, <laughs> we all came to the conclusion that he made the catch and he stumbled back and survived contact, but the ball popped loose. And, you know, it wasn't down by contact. He got hit before he kind of hit the ground. So, I, you know, I'm not, I, obviously they're looking at a wide variety of things that happen on a play. And one of those things is, does he, does he survive contact? Is he making a football move? Uh, you know, did he hit the ground before the ball popped out? All these, all these things come into, into the equation. But, you know, the, the superseding kind of end result should be, you know, what actually happened. And it was almost like they made up kind of a conclusion to, to what happened on that play. And that's just one small example, yes. not only in CFL, but even in the NFL, too. I, I mean, you know, you look at a replay and you come to a conclusion, and then, you know, the officials blurt out something out of the blue, and you're thinking, well, how is that? You know, I like, I like replay to a certain extent. I like them on turnovers, and I like them, obviously, on scoring plays. Those two, I think, are the determining factors uh, that replay is needed in many cases because you just can't tell. Hockey is a great example. You know, with the puck crossing the line, did it cross the line or not? I think replay is more often than not conclusive, as long as we can see the puck, on whether it crossed the line or not. In football, I think there are some barometers that, you know, they can look at to say yay or nay definitively. But things like pass interference, uh, you know, surviving contact, all this kind of stuff, is there's so much gray area. And the human element, at the end of the day, comes into play because it's a human looking at the replay, making a decision. That's And you know what? The funny part is, Rick, that so many people seem to have forgotten that point. You seem to think that, okay, if we remove it from the officials on the field, who by and large do a pretty good job, but if you remove it from them, people imagine, oh, it's now somehow perfect, that there's some system in place, and it's, again, just another human who's looking 
at this play. And, and, and you raise a great point, and that is there are some things, and again, I hate it, but I'm, I, will, I will be okay with the idea that plays that are black and white, did the ball cross the goal line? There's no gray area there. It either did or it didn't. That, okay, I can wrap my head around that thought, but the CFL has added replay to stuff that is now subjective, not objective. And so you just create a new layer of frustration, a new layer of difficulty. You know, you're talking about, you're talking about pass interference now. Well, you know, if I watch on instant replay, it's still a subjective call the official has to make. It's just now it's on TV. Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, when you get two or three or four or however many replay reviews in a game, that is slowing the game down. It stunts momentum. Uh, it causes, especially fans in the stands, because more often than not, they don't get to see the replay unless, uh, you know, you're in the home stadium and, and they want to show it for whatever reason, obviously, because they want to sway the officials, even though they're not looking at the video board. Um, it, it's really a time-consuming uh, endeavor if you're doing a handful of times and that you know games are long enough as it is uh, even if you're sitting at home there's so many other things that you can do while there's a replay obviously you're going to look at the replay but you can go you know to the fridge grab a sandwich go to the washroom whatever you're going to do um, it, it's fairly time consuming especially when you have a few of them in there so it really slows the game down well and again I go back to the point it's this is not a computerized thing that is with some sort of algorithm perfectly making decisions. You still have human people making decisions on subjective things. And I, I, again, I'll, I'll acknowledge that for the absolute black and white, okay, we'll have that for a goal or for a touchdown or whatever. But it almost seems to me that the CFL has reached a point that they either have to figure out, okay, here's how we do this perfectly or let's get rid of this because it just doesn't make any sense. It's just another layer, as I say, another layer of frustration. I don't think there is a single Tiger Cat fan that has any, after this week, has any confidence whatsoever in the replay rule for the CFL. Not one. Mm-hmm. Not one. So what's the point? Exactly. The other issue is, and this has kind of been making the rounds over the last couple of days, is should, should the officials in the replay booth and on the field be identified and, you know, I guess publicly tarred and feathered for lack of a better term, because, you know, in hockey, there's four officials in the NBA. There's, you know, three plus the off court guys Uh, in major league baseball. You have your four umpires. And of course, in the playoffs, you have, you know, a couple more, you know, should they be publicly kind of uh, drawn out to say, Hey, you know, this guy made a mistake. He's been fined or, you know, whatever the penalty is. Um, because it's easy to do in a sport like hockey. You know, there, there's four guys on the ice. You can pinpoint who made the mistake. In football, especially with the off-field kind of replay official, you know, they kind of rename, uh, remain nameless unless, you know, they're identified, you know, after the fact. Um, so that's a, that's a neat issue to look at if you're the CFL to say, hey, if we start naming these guys, are we going to see, you know, uh, better results or better execution of our rulebook? What do you think? Well, I don't think it'll work because they're still human. And, you know, it's no different than any other job. If you're going to make a mistake, yeah, you're going to try harder the next time to not make that mistake. But odds are, uh, especially in such a gray area as video replay, because there are so many things to look at. And some some plays are really inconclusive. You know, a guy tiptoeing on the sideline, was he out of bounds? You know, the replay's kind of fuzzy. You know, the grass is kind of tall or whatever the case is. The shoes are white. Um, you know, do you kind of scold an off-field official for making a big mistake, even though there's some gray area there? I, I do have issue with, you know, publicly calling out, especially a replay official on, on certain things. I was going to say, why are there so many mistakes on instant replay? And I think that's, <laughs> no, and I think that's an unfair thing to ask because I don't think there are a tremendous number of them. They're very obvious because of what we just talked about. If you're going to replay, the idea is that replay solves the problem. Replay, once you've had that second look in super slow motion with high definition, everything else from a better angle. So I don't think there's a huge number of them, but it again, Rick, it seems to me that the idea of it is this prevents all problems. That's how it's yeah. pitched. That's how it's framed, that this is the way to make sure there are no bad calls. So one that is a messed up replay call seems to throw the whole system into question for people. Exactly. You know, the expectation is a play happened. Um, let's go to review because this will definitively tell us what just transpired. 
And a lot of the times it doesn't. And, and there is, you know, that kind of fuzzy gray area that I've been talking about. And, you know, as a person looking at the replay, whether you're at home or you're in a command center that I'd imagine has a few more different views and, you know, fast forward and rewind and kind of, uh, you know, zoom in and, and, and stuff, they obviously have a little bit of better view than what, you know, the home viewer will have or, or you at the stadium will have. Um, but even so, I mean, it, it's, it's not an exact science. And I think, you know, once, uh, a replay is called for. I think the expectation from a fan standpoint is, okay, now they're going to get this right. Now we're going to get the real yes, answer. Yes. But it, that doesn't always happen. So, okay, two things. Uh, first of all, is it is part of the problem, and we got to do this quickly, is part of the problem that w- there is an expectation or a demand for speed? If you said, you know what, if it takes 10 minutes, we're going to take 10 minutes and get this right because everybody wants it done in 30 seconds or a minute. Is that part of the problem? I think that's part of the problem, sure, but I think the overriding factor is they want to get it right. So I think as a team, a player, a coach, a fan, you want to see the correct results, but you want to do it as quickly as possible. Last thing, 10 seconds. What happens if one of these happens in a playoff game or a great cup game? Does that end instant replay in the CFL, or does it vastly change it, or what happens if a team is knocked out on a botched replay? Yeah, I guess it would depend on what kind of call and what kind of replay, but... And I what team. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> it's I the Argos? Oh, well. Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to go away. There, there's going to be some tweaks here, there, and everywhere uh, over the next few years, but I don't think it's ever going to leave us. Rick Zamperin, you can hear him here all the time. And that's a good thing. Uh, by the way, Friday night, Friday night, right? Next uh, Friday night, yeah. uh, fifth quarter after the Ticats game, rematch against Ottawa. Again, no Zach Caleros, but there will be Rick Zamperin, so be here after the game. Rick, thanks for doing this. All right, take care, Scott. Fifth quarter, Friday night, again, after the Ticats game. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I wanted to get my next guest in for a bunch of different reasons because there's a lot of stuff going on, and he is certainly somebody who knows his way around the political machinations at various levels. And heaven knows this city has lots of political machinations these days with all the LRT stuff going on, with everything else that's happening, and now we've got ward boundary redesigns or redrawing and consultants and everything else coming up. Brad Clark has been an MPP. He has been a city councillor. He is now the head of the aptly named Brad Clark and Associates, Public Affairs Management, Advocacy, and Communications. He joins me now. Brad, how are you? I am doing fantastic, Scott. Great to hear your voice. You too. Thanks for coming on. We've, we've, I know you've been busy with other stuff and you've kind of not been able to dip your toes back into all this kind of talk. And so we're glad that you're now able to do this. I want to hear from you. How, how are things? <laughs> things are going great. And you know, you just can't stay away from politics. <laughs> I, well, you know, the politicians can't. The rest of us are running for our lives from it these days, but the politicians can't. Um, I, I want to get to the broader issue of our city council in just a second and get your opinion. Sure. But let's before we get there, uh, interesting story today that came out. I know some people are going to hear this and are going to just lose their lunch because they're so tired of some of these topics. And I understand that completely. But it's um, the boundary readjustment, realignment for the ward structure and everything else in the city. Here's a question I have, though. Uh, leaving aside, and I'll get to you in a second about that. The city just hired a consultant at a cost of $270,000 to study the ward boundary alignments. The ca- the consultant comes back to city council, says these ward as these wards as designed are unworkable for the future and must be changed. And we hear from a number of councillors and the mayor, Fred Eisenberger, who says he's doubtful council wants to go there and start dealing with this as an issue. So Brad, you've been there. Why did we just pay someone $270,000 if we're not going to do anything with this? Well, I suspect they are going to have to do something with it uh, because of the way the Municipal Act is written. But ward boundary reviews are always not just complicated from the process, but uh, there are lots of hidden political landmines for politicians. So generally across the board in all sectors politicians loathe looking at reviews and changing boundaries and because they could cut their legs out from under themselves um that that is always an underlying concern by a number of of 
probably more the political advisors than the politicians themselves, because their advisors will be telling them you need to maintain your core support. So where your base is, who loves you the most as a city <laughs> councillor, we can't lose that. And um, so they would be getting that advice from the people who are big supporters of them. And then on the other side, you have residents who are saying, well, the system isn't quite working anymore and it needs to be tweaked. And so somewhere between the two is likely where they'll land. Okay, but if that's the position, if if counselors are reluctant to do this, if they really don't want to deal with this stuff, and I and again, I think most of us, even who haven't been in politics, can understand if you're a politician, the last thing you want to do is make yourself unelectable again. Why then hire the consultant at that cost to come and do this if you if if this is something you're not going to want to venture into? Uh, therein lies the rub, Scott. The Municipal Act in Ontario gives the electors, you and I, the constituents, a lot of power and authority when it comes to ward boundary reviews. So should a council not do a review and not consider um, changing ward boundaries, it only takes 1% of registered voters in a municipality to file a petition with the Ontario Municipal Board and the Municipal Council demanding the change, and then it takes one person from that petition to go to the OMB to force the Ontario Municipal Board to change the ward boundaries, regardless of what the council wants to do. So who? So they're aware of that, and they're trying to prevent that from happening. Obviously, you want to maintain your own control, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, they're aware that that just is hanging there, kind of the sword of Damocles. If you don't do anything and the constituents are riled enough, then they can force the council's hand. So if you back up uh, over the last 10 years, council has talked about this a number of times. Then there was a petition that went to the, an earlier council demanding some action, there wasn't quite enough votes or signatures on the petition, but council did choose to begin the process of looking at it by launching this ward boundary review uh, in October 2015, I think is when it started. So is this a stall tactic then? As long as we keep looking like we're doing something, we can't actually have these people go to the OMB and force our hand? No. Um, it, it's, it's not a stall tactic because it, anyone who signs the petition, so assuming today that, that now that this report is public, uh, 1% of the population, which is roughly 500 signatures, they sign a petition, they send it to council and demand that council choose one of the options, option one or two, which is in the report. So either make it 16 words or remodified 15 words. And uh, if council doesn't act on that uh, within a certain time frame, then any of the people who signed that petition can go to the Ontario Municipal Board, request a hearing, and then the Ontario Municipal Board can, in fact, make the decision for council. And again, not to be obtuse about this, but to bring it around full circle. So we, we've got that. You've got you've they've gone to the process of getting the consultant. Things are happening, but now the mayor and several councillors say we don't really have interest in doing this. So it sounds like you've taken all these steps, but you're right back to the start where you say we're. Pr- it doesn't sound like they want to do anything about it, so which will lead us right back. Would it not to the petition and back to the OMB potentially? Yes, if that's the the way they go. Now, I I mean they. Uh, I think it was Councillor Skelly, if I'm not mistaken, yes. and um, um, Mayor Eisenberger, they used the terminology that council doesn't have an appetite. I, 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 I believe I, that's the wording. You're right, yep. Um, so, I mean, if, if they're parsing the words, they may not really have had a discussion with council, and they are probably 100% correct. I, I mean, I can't refute this. There is likely not an appetite, given my earlier comments, for any politician to start looking at it. But they recognize the way the law is written, so they have to make um, a responsible decision and move forward. You've been around that table. You've been in the decisions. How uh, you've been voting on stuff? How often, typically? How 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 many consultants' reports, outside consultants' reports, would city council be buying or or ordering over the course of a year? Is it rare to have a consultants' report that would come in at a quarter million bucks, or is this something that's commonplace? 
Uh, it's probably more common than we want to admit. <laughs> the, the consultants are, I mean, what most municipality has have shrunk their their workforce so their the the staff that they have and the expertise they have is is narrow in field so frequently if council wants something to be looked at and they direct staff and staff comes back and says well we'll need to hire a consultant to actually do that work so i've seen i've seen consultant reports come in over a million dollars over and I've seen consultant reports on average 150 200,000 so it really depends on what the file is this is not uh, a highly in my opinion not a highly priced report based on history um, I got to be a consultant if that's the case I, I'm missing the boat completely here yeah I don't have any <laughs> municipalities as clients so I guess I am too <laughs> but it's but if if all these and, and when these consultant reports come back is it more often than not that council and the city say, oh, okay, we got to follow the advice of these council, of these consultants' reports, or more often than not do they get discussed and then eventually over time get ignored or changed enough that it, you look back and you say, why did we just spend that quarter million bucks? Um, I would say that the majority of reports that come into Hamilton, I can only speak to Hamilton. Of course. Um, uh, they have acted on in some w- form or another. It is incredibly rare uh, for this city council to hire a consultant and not entertain the advice and act on the advice. So um, while they are expensive, it does help them move forward. It gives them, um, you know, an independent third party giving the assessment without politics involved. Now they have to make the decision based on that expertise. The, I mean, the issue with this con- particular consultant report, and I'll throw this to you for a second here, is about the ward boundary redrawing, which I know is one of those things that is about as uh, as sexy as, I don't know, at the risk of completely getting myself in trouble. Find the least sexy thing possible and just plop that in there for people to come up with their own metaphor or simile. Um, but, th- I mean, it's something that really doesn't make a lot of people just sit up at night getting all excited about ward boundary redrawing. But... It's what is the Melbatose. There you go. Okay. Well, that's you know that's as good as any that'll keep both of us out of trouble. Um, what is in your mind? If you had one rather simple way to redraw the boundaries, what would your way? What would your method be that would be the best way to fix this? I'm very pragmatic, and and it's to be fair to your listeners, I have always advocated for a ward boundary review. So in my eight years on council, I always encouraged council to get on with it, that it was time. Um, The boundaries were set in 2001. They were set by um, executive council order at at the provincial cabinet. Uh, um, I was there at the time, and um, they haven't changed since. So, you know, you're looking at 15 years with no change. If you're looking at the population growth, which has, has for the last 10, 15 years, uh, shifted the population from the former wards 1 through 8 boundaries to the outlying suburban area. If you're looking at that amount of growth uh, and the changes, then um, it is prudent for them to try to redraw the boundaries to make them a little, a little bit more balanced, if you will, that they're closer and in population, uh, while respecting the rural areas. So, so you're talking. Your idea would be more of a tweak than a full-on redo. Yeah, and and even this consultant uh, Scott didn't do a, a full-on redo. I mean, he, they um, did an excellent job in terms of of looking at it, and they came up with um, the suggestion of one additional ward um, that would take them to 16 wards in the mayor, which would eliminate tie votes. Um, frequently they have tie votes at council, and right now a tie vote would go down to defeat. So you want to eliminate that risk at all times, um, and this would be one way of doing it. So add one ward, it would cost a one-time fee of, uh, you know, I think it's $230,000. Actually, that would be an annual fee, $230,000 a year, um, and minor rejigging of, of the ward boundaries that exist. So with the incumbency factor, um, it's unlikely that any of the incumbents would have a challenge um, uh, 
you know, in the next election, they they would still have the majority of their supporters. And with two, only 230000 a year, I mean, that's just one consultant's report. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and they wouldn't have to do this again for 15 years. <laughs> but just before, okay, will there be, if, if that was going to be the case, and it seems like the, the ward that would get split up would be Councillor Skelly's, which is the biggest ward in the city, that would put another ward on the mountain. Would that not automatically, if that came to council for a discussion about adding another ward outside the lower city, would that not create an immediate fight? Because we already see, Brad, that every single fight that goes on at city council is between the upper city, the lower city, the suburbs, the the downtown. Now you're going to throw another vote in the hands, presumably, of those that would be not in the downtown. That, to me, just the deciding on that would create a huge war. Well, in politics, it's always a challenge to have politics without a battle or without a war. So let's face it, there's always going to be disputes between one area in the city and the other. They have to work together to the best of their abilities, which I think, I bet you 90% of the time, this council has proven themselves. Um, So they really do uh, tackle things more collaboratively. Um, but there has been push and pull, and it is because there's a shift in population, and that shifting popula- population to the suburban areas is is um, acting by becoming more engaged with their councillors. So that pressure is there. Uh, it's up to the councillors uh, and the mayor to be responsible, to be reasonable, to be professional, um, and acknowledge that at the end of the day they're doing everything for the benefit of the overall city. Okay, you use words professional, I uh, can't remember all the other words you used there, but I mean, uh, there are a lot of people, and you know this, you've been at that, at that table, you've been outside that table. There are a lot of people in this city that say, you're asking them to be professional and accommodating and all these other things. I don't see that. How is this council, they've had the LRT, you had the stadium while you were there, you know what these kind of debates are like. How has this council been doing? They've been taking a lot of crap. They are certainly in the crosshairs a lot of the time. Is that deserved? Is this council doing a job that deserves that kind of criticism? Or do you look at this particular council saying, you know what, no, they've got a tough job and they're doing as best they can? It's the latter for me. Um, I really believe that they are doing the best they can. There is no doubt that decisions are made from time to time that just raise your hackles and and your ire and you're just oh my goodness what are they doing now and and if you were there you would say something different um but they're making decisions based on the facts that are before them and and like i say 90 percent of their decisions are really good decisions on the lrt file the issue there really has become that there is a lot of people in the community uh, that are having second thought misgivings about it um, and for what it, it is what it is, right? You, it's a large infrastructure project. You're either going to get on side and try to mitigate those issues, or you're going to try and block it. It would be more prudent for councillors to try to move forward with the project than try to cause more um, division in the community. That's my opinion. But others may have different opinions. Uh, but really, you're talking about a small number of issues where council is truly divided on them. Well, and those are the big ones though, right? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so they're the ones that get all the headlines and get the attention because those are the ones that really matter. I mean, it's fine to put a stop sign at your local street corner. Who cares about that? I mean, ex- Okay, you caught me. Yes, no, but, it, but it, I mean, and, and so it becomes very obvious that there is division at times on certain things and very hearty division. And they're passionate people. Let's, let's I mean... If we cut them just an ounce of slack, they're passionate about their positions, they're passionate about their beliefs, they believe they've done their own homework, they're critical thinkers, and when you put all of those alpha people in one room debating an issue where there is dispute, if you don't have someone who's really going to hold them together and try to keep them moving forward and find that pragmatic compromise, then you're going to have conflict. Well, that's a tasty morsel that you just hung out there. Are you suggesting that uh, that that does not exist, that the mayor is not holding up his end of the bargain? Uh, I would say that it is a challenging group of people to get to work towards compromise. And the leader of the group also has to be willing to compromise. So um, it is never... Success in politics, Scott, is generally 
about pragmat- being pragmatic. The more pragmatic, the more practical you are. The more grounded you are, the more success the group will have. And so when you have passionate people that really strongly believe that they're in the right and they get upset with people opposing their position and impugn motives unnecessarily, then you really have some challenging conflict. And there's no need for it. Everyone has a right to speak. Everyone has a right to their opinion. We don't have to agree with the opinion, but they have a right to speak as counselors. That's why they're there. Let me put you right on the spot. I got one minute left here, less than a minute. Okay. Had Brad Clark won the last election and was mayor of Hamilton, would the LRT decision be decided already? The transit decision, I, I can't speculate. <laughs> I, you know what? It, it would be incredibly unfair to the Mayor Eisenberger and the council. Um, you throw one more person in the mix, and, and yes, it could have been a slightly different decision. But ultimately, they are where they are, and they really simply have to start moving forward and mitigating the impacts as opposed to trying to re-deliberate um, over and over again. Brad Clark, Brad Clark and Associates, uh, we will be having you back again. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. You take care. That is uh, former city council member, former MPP, Brad Clark. Some of you will agree with everything he said. Some of you will disagree entirely. Some will say his views on city council is right. Some will say his views on city council are completely off base. That's politics. That's exactly what he was talking about, but that you are fully entitled to that viewpoint. But it is really interesting. All this, of, of all the things I took out of there, the one thing that stands out that we, I wanted to keep moving, but I can't remember his exact wording, but about the number of consultants reports, <laughs> there are more, something along the lines, there are more than we care to, to have something like that. I, that doesn't fill, imbue me with a great sense of confidence about all of our tax dollars. I'll be honest with you. It really doesn't. When we start throwing around hundreds of thousands of dollars for consultants' reports on this and that and the other, all, that money is not being plucked off of magical money trees. That's coming from our tax dollars. That's not fixing roads. That's not doing this. And I know, I know we have to have these things studied. But how come every consultant's report has to be really, really expensive? Are there no... And again, it's a rhetorical question, but are there no consultants out there that actually work for like less than the vast biggest amount of money humanly possible? It seems, I mean, when was the last consultants report that came in and, you know, I did six weeks work and it was 50,000 bucks as opposed to 250,000 bucks. Maybe that's why you get into consulting. I guess that is, as I say, maybe in my next life, I should come back as a consultant. It sounds way more lucrative than being radio show host. I'll tell you that much. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.